God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles now and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. The Benson commentary on this, the gracious scheme of salvation by faith, the appointment of which depended on his sovereign will alone, termed a mystery, because it was but darkly revealed under the law, is now totally hid from unbelievers, and has heights and depths in it which surpass all the knowledge even of true believers. The whole doctrine of the gospel, taken complexly, is called the wisdom of God in a mystery. 1 Corinthians 2.7 The mystery of his will, which is also termed the mystery of Christ, is God's hidden plan of redemption. Its centerpiece is Jesus Christ himself. And the NASB of Colossians 2.2 That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. The mystery of his God's will is ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Before any man can be brought to the hidden wisdom of God, he must learn that this wisdom is held and contained in the person of God's Son. Absent faith in the Son of God, and belief in all God has accomplished through him, God's plan of redemption would forever remain hidden. Without Christ and the hope God has offered through him, all done under the sun is nothing more than vanity and vexation of spirit. In Ecclesiastes 1.14, Solomon's words, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. These are Solomon's words given by inspiration of God and confirmed by Solomon's own experience. The Benson commentary on this, I have seen all the works, diligently observed, and in a great measure understood them. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, not only unsatisfying, but also an affliction or breaking to a man's spirit, end quote. Matthew Henry's commentary on this, Solomon tried all things and found them vanity. He found his searches after knowledge weariness, not only to the flesh but to the mind. The more he saw of the works done under the sun, the more he saw their vanity, and the sight often vexed his spirit. He could neither gain that satisfaction to himself nor do that good to others which he expected. Even the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom discovered man's wickedness and misery, so that the more he knew, the more he saw cause to lament and mourn. And Matthew Poole's commentary on this, all is vanity and vexation of spirit, not only unsatisfied, but also troublesome, and an affliction or breaking to a man's spirit or mind. Or as others, both ancient and modern translators render it, a feeding upon wind as these very words save only that there is the verb from which this now seems most probably deduced, are rendered, Hosea 12.1, where also it signifies a fruitless or lost labor and disappointment of their hopes and desires of satisfaction, end quote. If any man has not Christ and has not the hope of glory offered through him, then this life ultimately will do nothing more than break his spirit 
and expose him to the emptiness of earthly existence without God and without hope. Because of man's natural limitations, he cannot not only not know God, but also cannot even remotely perceive the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Thus, even if the glorious truths concerning the mystery of God's will are described in Scripture, words alone, without spiritual illumination, can do nothing to actually convey the glorious and beauty of the higher spiritual realm. Hence, just like describing an apple to someone who has never seen an apple, nor tasted its sweetness, words alone are inadequate to fully reveal the actual experience. Spiritual reality, therefore, even with divine illumination, will far exceed anything revealed in Scripture concerning the mystery of God's will for the saved. And in 1 Corinthians 2.9 we read, But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Barnes notes on this, Nor ear heard, we learn the existence and quality of objects by the external senses. And those senses are used to denote any acquisition of knowledge. To say that the eye had not seen, nor the ear heard, was, therefore, the same as saying that it was not known at all, end quote. Verse 10. That in the dispensations of the fullness of times, he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him. Barnes' notes on this. He might gather together in one. The word used here, anakepalio, means literally to sum up, to recapitulate, as an order does at the close of his discourse. In the New Testament, the word means to collect under one head, or to comprehend several things under one, Romans 13, 9. It is briefly comprehended, summed up under this one precept. In the passage before us, it means that God would sum up, or comprehend all things in heaven and earth through the Christian dispensation. He would make one empire under one head with common feelings and under the same laws. The reference is to the unity which will hereafter exist in the kingdom of God when all his friends on earth and in heaven shall be united and all shall have a common head. Now there is alienation. The earth has been separated from other worlds by rebellion. It has gone off into apostasy and sin. It refuses to acknowledge the great head to which other worlds are subject. And the object is to restore it to its proper place, so that there shall be one great and united kingdom. The gathering of Christ's body is central to what God has preordained to be accomplished through his Son. Yet the depth of God's plan goes much deeper than even this. Not only will God gather through his Son those purpose to share with him in heaven, but he will also, through his Son, bring the rest of his creation under Christ's sovereign and complete rule. Thus, not only will the church be gathered unto her Savior, but the whole of creation will be placed under Jesus Christ, the church's head. The end result of the Lord gathering all things together in one, is that every knee shall bow unto God's Son. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, we read, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Geneva Study Bible on this 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. All creatures will at length be subject to Christ, end quote. The subjection, reverence, and praise, which shall be directed towards the Son of God, the Lamb of God, is seen in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, we read, And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. He whom the Christian has made his Lord, and who has saved the Christian through the shedding of his own blood, shall be appointed by God's power Lord over all creation. Through the Son, God will also establish himself as creation's final and ultimate ruler. For when God puts down all rule and authority through the Son, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that put all things under him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 24, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this subject, Son himself subject, not as the creatures are, but as a son voluntarily subordinate to, though co-equal with the Father. In the mediatorial kingdom, the Son had been, in a manner, distinct from the Father. Now his kingdom shall merge in the Father's, with whom he is one, not that there is thus any degradation from his honor, for the Father himself wills that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father." The final glorious result, when all things are brought into subjection to the Son, and then the Son yields his spiritual spoils and victories to the Father, is now God may be all in all. By this it is meant that God will be all and everything to the entirety of his creation. There will be no more thoughts or actions of rebellion, nor anything else that will be resistant to divine will. All shall be purified in order that the rightful glory due God is manifest throughout every element of his creation. God will be all to everything, and his presence will dwell in everything." The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible commentary on this. God all in all, as Christ is all in all, then and not till then all things, without the least infringement of the divine prerogative, shall be subject to the Son and the Son subordinate to the Father, while co-equally sharing His glory. Even the saints do not fully realize God as their all. Now through desiring it, then each shall feel God all to me, end quote. Rebellion can only take place where God does not dwell and where created beings have refused his divine presence. This universal sin will be forever removed when the Lord completely fills all things with himself. 
Therefore, God's own eternal presence shall ensure that it is only God's will that shall be desired, and anything contrary to this shall be found completely undesirable and joyfully rejected. There will be no temptation able to lead men into sin, simply because God shall fully and completely dwell in each and every element of His creation. Where holiness fully resides, sin no longer remains either enticing or tempting. Hence, in whomever and whatever God fully dwells, sin cannot. His own holy presence prohibits this. It is therefore the ultimate purpose of the hidden mystery of God that through God's Son, God shall ultimately restore complete and total subjection to His own name. Today, even Christians pray for more of God, more of His divine presence in their lives, and a more intimate relationship with Him. This internal yearning will soon be quenched once through the Son of God, the Lord will be all and in all. He will be all the Christian has hoped. He will be all the Christian has always hoped in his heart he would be. And the Father will fill all, all of creation with his own holiness and glory. Verse 11 now in Ephesians. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It is in Jesus Christ and through him that the Christian has been made worthy of fellowship with God and granted access to heaven. The future inheritance promised to the believer is said to have been predestinated by God according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. What is remarkable about this spiritual truth is that not only has God predestinated those chosen to be saved by his Son, but he also actively works to ensure that what he has willed concerning them will fully become reality. Men have not the power or inherent spiritual ability to fulfill and bring into reality all which they have purpose to do. As such, all men have a degree of disappointment scattered throughout their lives of things they wish to accomplish but could not. This is not so with God. What he wills, he has absolute and sufficient spiritual power and ability to accomplish. To the Lord, there is no gap that exists between what he has willed to be and what will be. He suffers no such disappointment or inability as men do to fulfill their will. Because God's heavenly power is equal to his divine will, then all that he purposes and preordains to do shall be done as his own will has determined. The Lord therefore works all things to be accomplished exactly as his own counsel has determined they should be. Whatever the Lord has willed shall be, simply because there is no power on earth or in heaven sufficiently able to prevent his will from being accomplished. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will, in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? Barnes on this verse, That man has no power to prevent the fulfillment of the divine purposes, that God will accomplish his design in all things, whatever opposition man may make, that he, God, has absolute control over every human being, and over all that pertains to anyone and everyone. That he will overrule all things so as to make them subservient to his own plans. 
that he will make use of men to accomplish his own purposes. That there is a great and glorious scheme of administration, which God is carrying out by the instrumentality of men. End quote. It is God who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Whatever the Lord has preordained, in any manner or shape, his own spiritual power and authority ensures that what he has purposed by him shall and must be fully accomplished. Barnes on Ephesians 1.11 Of him who worketh all things, the word rendered worketh, energeo, means to work to be active to produce. A universal agency is ascribed to him, the same God which worketh all in all. He has an agency in causing the emotions of our hearts. God who worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. He has an agency in distributing to people their various allotments and endowments. All these worketh that one and selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will, end quote. Though many foolishly believe that they can control both their own and others' destiny, both time and experience will prove they cannot. Since all destiny, without exception, resides under the Lord's own sovereign will and not man's. And Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning, and from the ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And as such, all that is under God's divine supervision shall reach his purposed end. This also must include those God has chosen in Christ to ultimately be lifted up into heaven and be glorified together with the Son. The Cambridge Bible on Ephesians 1.11 The stress is not only upon the sovereignty, but upon the effectuality of the divine purpose. He who supremely wills, going in his will upon reasons which are indeed of his own, also in fact carries out that will, so that with him to preordain is infallibly to accomplish. End quote. Ephesians 1.12 now. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Barnes on this verse. That we should be the praise of his glory. Should be the occasion or the means of celebrating his glory. Or that praise should be ascribed to him as the result of our salvation. End quote. The Christian salvation and God's power to accomplish it both has now and will in the future bring praise and glory to God. Ephesians 1.12, the God's Word translation. He planned all of this so that we who had already focused our hope on Christ would praise Him and give Him glory. It is a glory to God when men trust in His Son, Jesus Christ, as the visible representation of God. Thus all who believe upon the Son believe upon the One who sent Him. When then men put their trust in Christ, this brings glory to the Father. What is also worth noting is that the death and cross of Christ is the foundation of Christ's glory, whereby Christ was glorified and the Father glorified in Christ. And in John chapter 13, verse 30, right before the crucifixion, He, Judas, then having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. The torture and crucifixion of Jesus was soon to follow. 
Hence, Jesus makes reference that through the cross, he would be glorified and the Father likewise be glorified in him. The cross of Christ, therefore, should be recognized as both Christ's and God's glory. Hence, no man should view the crucifixion of their Savior as Jesus being a victim, when in fact the cross is, by divine standards, the glorification of both the Father and the Son. Ellicott's commentary on this, Now is the Son glorified. The going out of Judas is the sign that the betrayal and death of the Son of Man was at hand. In that was the glory of his accomplished work, and he speaks of this glory as present. God is glorified in him. This is a restatement of the thought which has met us whenever the work of the Son has been dwelt upon. It was the Father's work too. The glory of the Son of Man in the redemption of the world was the glory of God, who gave his only begotten Son, that by him the world might be saved. End quote. John chapter 13, verse 32 now. If God be glorified in him, and these are Jesus' words again, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Ellicott's commentary on this, God shall also glorify him in himself. The thought is that the humiliation by which God is manifested to the world is the glory of God in the person of the Son of Man, and that this shall be followed by the glory of the Son of Man in the person of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 now. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is the gospel, the word of truth, that if men put their trust and confidence in it, contains the spiritual power of God to save them. When men place their trust in the word of truth and the message of Jesus Christ contained in it, they will subsequently be, also by God's power, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Faith in the word of truth, therefore, ultimately results in being filled with the spirit of truth. It is also by receiving the Holy Spirit that men are both made and confirmed to be the true children of God. The Greek word for seals is tragizo, helps word study defines it as to attest worship, authorizing, validating what is sealed to seal signifies ownership and the full security carried by the backing full authority of the owner. Sealing was sometimes done in antiquity by the use of religious tattoos, again signifying belonging to. That which confirms a man has believed the gospel and received the truth is when Jesus Christ baptizes him with the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit which is the authentic mark and seal which both confirms and reveals God's true sons. But if men do not possess the Holy Spirit, it is damning evidence that they have no true relationship with God or that God acknowledges them as a member of the saved. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we read, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Just as a king would stamp a letter and put his name upon it, as having come from himself, so does Jesus Christ stamp and affix his seal on those who have been made through himself sons of God. The reason also why Christians will yield their entire life to God and willingly, freely, and ungrudgingly submit to Christ's divine sovereignty is because they are, through receiving the Holy Spirit, God's own possession. Because Christians have been made sons of God, they will lovingly yield to God's rule. The unsaved, though, 
have no such desire as this. Because God is not their father, they see no real internal reason to become subject to either his will or his son. Consequently, the reason why so many of the earth's inhabitants possess no real desire to either please or subject themselves to God's will is simply because they have not been made God's sons and, in fact, have no actual relationship with him. Absent, therefore, any true relationship with the Father, his will is deemed unimportant and unnecessary to be obeyed. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 now which is the earnest, and this is in respect to the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. The earnest of our inheritance spoken of is the Holy Spirit of promise of the previous verse. The Greek word for earnest is arabon. It is defined by Strong's as an earnest, a part payment in advance for security. Helps word study defines the word properly in installment, a deposit, a down payment which guarantees the balance, the full purchase price. The word also is common in the papyri for down payment, earnest money, and hence frequent in business documents and agreements. What these definitions teach is that when Jesus fills a man with the Holy Spirit, then it is proof that he has now a part and share in Christ's mystical body and that he will share in Christ's coming kingdom. By possessing the Spirit of God, God's new sons have God's divine pledge that they will be gladly and cheerfully welcomed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because Christians have been made part of Christ's mystical body, they are guaranteed to share in his coming kingdom. Ellicott's commentary on Ephesians 1.14, which is the earnest of our inheritance, we are very members in corporate in the mystical body of Christ and also heirs through hope of his everlasting kingdom. In reality, Christians become members of Christ's celestial kingdom the very moment that Christ imparts to them the Holy Spirit. And though they remain on the earth, once anointed with the Holy Spirit, they are now eternally joined to the Son. Hence, once a sinner is baptized with Christ's baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit, then this confirms and testifies that he has been made a son of God and now is a part of the Savior's heavenly body. In Isaiah 43, 21, we read, This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Though this verse has direct relationship with Israel, the truth is that it is even more applicable to those found to be in Christ today. God has kept his name alive in a sinful world that desires nothing of him by his choosing and equipping a people who will sound forth his praise revealing that those chosen by God to be his own have been purposed to promote the glory of God. By doing so, the glory of the Lord's name will not be forgotten, so that men may continue to be saved by him. Every true Christian, therefore, should spiritually realize that one of the great purposes for his being made a son of God is so that a knowledge of God and the glory due God's name continues to be published in the earth. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. The two most distinguishing characteristics of those given heavenly inheritance are their possessing sincere faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. In reality, faith in the Son of God 
and God's love cannot be separated. They are divinely linked. Thus, if a man truly possesses one, he must possess the other. Therefore, whenever there exists a genuine and sincere faith in Jesus Christ, there will be a corresponding love for others saved by him. Christ also revealed that the one great recognizable characteristic that would validate men becoming his disciples is that they would spiritually love other Christian disciples. And in John chapter 13, verse 35, we read, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Barnes on this verse, By this shall all men, that is, your love for each other, shall be so decisive evidence that you are like the Savior, that all people shall see and know it. It shall be the thing by which you shall be known among all men. You shall not be known by special rights or habits, not by a special form of dress and manner of speech, not by special austerities and unusual customs, like the Pharisees, the Essenes, or the scribes, but by deep, genuine, and tender affection. And it is well known it was this which eminently distinguished the first Christians and was the subject of remark by the surrounding pagans. See, said the pagan, see how they love one another. They are ready to lay down their lives for each other. Alas, how changed is the spirit of the Christian world since then. Perhaps of all the commands of Jesus, the observance of this is that which is least apparent to a surrounding world. It is not so much that they are divided into different sects, for this may be consistent with love for each other, but is the want of deep-felt, genuine love towards Christians, even of our own denomination. The absence of genuine self-denial, the pride of rank and wealth, and the fact that professed Christians are often known by anything else rather than by true attachment to those who bear the same Christian name and image. The true Christian loves religion, wherever it is found, equally in a prince or in a slave, in the mansion of wealth or in the cottage of poverty, on the throne or in the hut of want. He overlooks the distinction of sect, of color, and of nations. And wherever he finds a man who bears the Christian name and manifests the Christian spirit, he loves him. And this, more and more, as the millennium draws near, will be the special badge of the professed children of God. Christians will love their own denominations less than they love the spirit and temper of the Christian, wherever it may be found, end quote. Once found in Christ, true spirituality is confirmed and testified by faith expressing itself through love. And in Galatians 5, 6, we read, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love where before circumcision was the external mark of being God's holy people. Now faith and love fill this role. It is also by the Christian possessing love for both God and all others born of him that the entirety of God's law is fulfilled. Romans 13, verse 10, Love worketh no will to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Ellicott's commentary on this, Fulfilling of the law. The form of the Greek word implies not only that love helps a man to fulfill the law, but that in the fact of the presence of love in his heart, the law is actually fulfilled. Amen.